Okay, welcome to another edition of the Culture Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds and get to learn about other cultures. Uh, my name is Nosai Yari, and you guys are welcome to another episode. Um, today, I have Tanya Chiaires on the podcast. How's it going, Tanya? Good, good. Thank you for having me today. Most definitely. How's your week been? It's uh, the summer is looking better than 2020 summer so have you had the chance to do anything yet this summer yeah i actually just got married this summer so i went Ooh, on my congratulations honeymoon. thank you i don't have a bell or anything here congrats <laughs> thank you so much yeah it was a really big deal for us to to have a wedding you know sort of start to bring people back together after being shut down for a year uh and even get to travel for our honeymoon which would not have been unheard of last year nice where'd you guys go we were able to go to hawaii which is wow. also really incredible yeah as in undo- my partner is also undocumented um and so that was a really big deal for us too that's interesting and it's fascinating you said that that uh, you're undocumented because i was going to get to that but let me touch on your wedding a little bit like how big was this wedding did you guys wait because you wanted Ooh. to have a big wedding? <laughs> yeah, we did. So I am Me- Mexicana, um, and my family, their usual numbers are like 500 people, right? And so there was no way we were going to have a 500 people wedding last year when it was supposed to be. So we definitely postponed, um, and we ended up with a 200 people wedding this year. Right. I'm sure some Americans are listening and say, 200? That's still a large wedding. <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah. Nigerian, so I know everything about large weddings. I know like in the Hispanic culture in Mexico and in India, you know, cultures like that, like weddings are usually like large and elaborate. The more, the merrier, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. In in Nigeria, we have a saying that we want as many people to witness this as possible so the husband doesn't deny that he got married. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm going to tell my husband that. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Don't tell him you came from me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, we love having lots of people at at weddings and parties and any kind of gathering, really. Even birthdays are a really big deal in my family. Nice, nice. And is your whole family here? Because from what I understand, you were born in Chihuahua, Mexico, right? And you emigrated mm-hmm. to the U.S. with your parents when you were much younger. Did the whole family emigrate or some people were like kind of like back home? Sure. So my immediate family is here, my mom and dad and my younger siblings. I'm the oldest of four. We're all here in Colorado. And the rest of my family is still in Mexico. So like my grandparents, my tios, my tias, many of my cousins are, are still back in my home country. Um, but my mom and dad are here. So when you say your tia, what, what is that? What does that mean? That's my aunts and uncles. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> like, I wasn't sure. Like, okay, is that kind of like uh, nanny or kind of like your aunt and uncle? <laughs> so but you, you use tia interchangeably for both aunts and uncles? Tia is the feminine and tio is the masculine. Though many people, yeah, though many people in the Spanish language are trying to, you know, figure out how to make it a little less gendered. Right, right, right. Interesting. Well, we learn every day. That's the reason for this podcast. So I just learned something today. <laughs> and I'm yeah. sure our listeners did too. Okay. Talk to me about what you remember in Chihuahua, Mexico. Like, how old were you? Did, did you, had you started school? Had you become aware of your environment before you guys moved? Talk to me about 
back in Mexico? Absolutely. So I was born in the city. Both my parents are from little towns, but they converged in the city and that's where I was born. It was Nuevo Casas Grandes in Chihuahua, Mexico. And, you know, what I remember is just bits and pieces because I was very young when I came to the United States. I was five years old. Um, so what I remember are like the vibrant moments. For example, we used to have parades where everyone would dress up and like parade around town. So I remember wearing like a little uh, Adelita dress and then Adelita is like a Mexican warrior. And so you have like your dress and then, uh, you know, normally an Adelita would actually have like guns and stuff, but obviously we did not. Um, but I still remember those moments and just the feeling of joy and culture and, you know, traipsing around town in my dress. Um, but I don't remember much else. Uh, the other pieces that I know really just come from the stories that my mom and dad tell me. So my mom shares with me how we lived in poverty. And so we lived in a one room house. And she said that I learned to walk just by like holding on to the dinner table and walking around it in a circle because that's all we had in the room. That's kind of so like a mini Olympics kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I would just walk around the table learning how to walk and I couldn't go anywhere else. I mean, it was a small space. Um, and yeah, so she, she reminds me that she would make like a fist full of ground beef last a week, 10 days, 12 days. And that's all we had. Um, you know, eventually my family really just knew that they couldn't raise me in that level of poverty. And so we came to the United States when I was five. Interesting. And were your siblings born by then or your siblings were born here in the States? No, so my siblings are actually U.S. citizens. They were born over here. Yeah, I'm the old, I'm the oldest of four, and I'm the only one that's undocumented uh, with both my parents. And then my siblings are all U.S. citizens. Got it, got it. Okay, let, let's peel back the layers a little bit about this term, undocumented, right? And obviously, I'm, I'm an immigrant myself, like I'm Nigerian, so I understand this, but a lot of people who might be listening to the podcast might not understand this. So let's explain this, right, to, to a fifth grader. Like, what does it mean to be undocumented? Did you have a file and it got lost somewhere? Like, well, what's something <laughs> you don't have your documents anymore? <laughs> what does that yeah, mean? I mean, colloquially, everyone just says, like, I don't have papers. And that's the way we sort of talk about it on the streets is I don't have papers. Um, much more formally, undocumented means I'm unauthorized to be in the United States. Um, obviously, there's much more demeaning words that are shared around the country. Um, but, you know, a few years back, probably like a decade ago, there was an entire movement to drop the I word, the word illegal, so that newspapers and media outlets would stop calling us um, that word and instead replace it with undocumented or un unauthorized. Um, but yeah, I actually came to this country with a visa. It was a tourist visa. And if y'all know anything about tourist visas, you come to this country and they expire after six months. And so after six months, my family and I stayed in this country and became undocumented. Um, yeah. Right, right. Like aptly put, aptly put. Okay, so you guys came on a tourist visa. So there wasn't like, uh, you know, obviously like I'm Nigerian myself. So we, we usually have a bunch of Nigerians who try to, you know, go in through to Europe through 
like Northern Africa and like Nigeria, you know, kind of like similar with the Mexican-U.S. border. So it was nothing like that in your experience. No, you know, I'm actually super lucky to be one of the undocumented people that didn't have an arduous and like dangerous journey to the U.S. Um, we, I was born four hours below the border. So we actually just like drove up north and then crossed the border with the visa and then drove up a little bit further and stayed in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, so altogether, it was an eight-hour drive, which, you know, eight hours is kind of not a lot in the United States. Um, but certainly there are, yeah, exactly. Like you could just cover the state of California from the top to bottom. Uh, but certainly there are many people that, that do migrate to the United States and have really treacherous journeys. I mean, the, the U S Mexico border, even the Mexico Guatemalan border, like any border is going to have its own challenges for sure. Right. Right. And obviously you were five years old, so you knew none of this. I'm sure even your parents were holding your passport for your visa. So you obviously just grew up in America thinking that, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a normal American. Maybe the school is different. Oh, why are people speaking differently here? Yeah. Why people don't look like us, that kind of thing. Phoenix, Arizona, I would say, I mean, every state in, in, in the country has its share of prejudices or people who are prejudicial or, or whatnot. But what was your particular experience in the environment where you lived or even in school, where people accepting of you, of your family? What, what were your earlier experiences in seeing people who didn't necessarily look like you? How did those people treat you? Mm, great question. Well, I'll start by saying that my parents told me we were coming to Disneyland. And they brought- <laughs> <laughs> ah, shout out to your pops. And yeah. Mom. <laughs> they were like, how do we get Tanya to stay in a car for eight hours? We're going to tell her we're going to Just Disney- be quiet. We're almost in Disneyland. And you'd be like, yay, this beats walking around the table, right? <laughs> yeah, I was so excited. And then I actually never went to Disneyland until I was like 18 years old. Wow, <laughs> so wow, wow. That, wow. Was a, that was my 18th birthday gift. But anyway, yeah, Phoenix, Arizona. Um, Well, you know, it's important to note that I was raised in Maricopa County under Sheriff Arpaio. And if any, if any listeners, yeah, if anyone's aware of Sheriff Arpaio, I mean, he had numerous lawsuits against him for human rights violations. I mean, just a, a, what I would call a very terrible racist human. Um, and it was hard. Uh, as a small person getting there, I started first grade in Phoenix. And I still have moments that I remember very deeply in like my bones, just sitting in class and hearing everyone speak something else that wasn't something I understood and no one trying to help me. I mean, the teacher would give me construction paper and scissors and glue and I didn't know what to do with it. So I would just sit there and cry and none of the other students would like translate or help me. Um, so there were, my mom tells me that I would, I was crying. I was coming home and crying every day for that first year because it was so hard. Wait, so you guys didn't speak English at home at all? Like you had, you learned English in school? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, I spoke Spanish. Um, eventually, I was paired up with another student who also spoke Spanish. And that's how I started understanding things because the other student would translate. She would be like, oh, this is what the teacher's saying. And I'd be like, yes. Um, but it's even crazy for me to think about that now because that means that a like seven, eight-year-old, nine-year-old student had to, as a translator for another yep. seven, eight-year-old yep. student. And these are some of like the little nuances like that people who are not immigrants don't necessarily understand, right? I, I have I have a friend who's like, um, he, he's from Cote d'Ivoire and it's a French-speaking country in, in West Africa. And he came to the U.S. when it was about 13, 14. And he didn't speak English as well. So like, it's hard enough learning math in English. 
<laughs> or like, but when you don't even understand the language of the, uh, you know, of the subject being taught, then understanding it theoretically, that's a whole different case. Like I always, I've talked on the podcast a couple of times about when I went to Canada one time, right? And I came here as a student and we went for a competition. We're representing our school in another university in Canada. And on our way back, we almost missed our flight, right? Because we had to fly to, from Vancouver to Toronto and then from Toronto to Washington, D.C. So I don't know, the flight was delayed or something in Vancouver to Toronto. We got to Toronto, everyone is sprinting towards like the gate and everyone just ran and everyone was American except me. And when they got to the gate, they just like flashed their American passports and swiped it quickly and ran. But because I didn't have an American passport, I had to go through a longer process and everyone was like, kind of like, what are you doing? We're going to be late. And it was hard for me to kind of like communicate in that split second and no, it's a different process, you know. So I say that to say like a lot of people like might have seen, you know, this term undocumented or whatever, but because it doesn't affect them, the same thing with racism and all these other things, like they might not necessarily understand the extent to which, you know, their friends or colleagues or other people might be going through. Why is it important to identify yourself as undocumented and to be on platforms like this and to do what you do, to, to keep screaming that word uh, undocumented for people to hear? Why is it important that you're bringing light to the situation? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Tania Victoria Chaires. I am undocumented and unafraid, queer and unashamed. And and it is so important to share that with people. Um, I mean, clearly, when I was growing up, immigration wasn't something that was openly talked about unless it was in a negative perspective. So I grew up hearing on the news that, you know, Mexicans in particular, like immigrants broadly, but specifically from my country, um, were the worst, that we were just coming here to steal jobs, that we couldn't assimilate, and that we were bringing all the terrible things into this country. And so at some point, I started internalizing that. And I thought I was very much alone. I thought no one else understood my plight. I thought, you know, there were even points in my life when I was like, why? Like, why am I even here? Everyone hates me. Why should I be in some place that everyone hates me? And it wasn't until I started hearing other people share their stories that I really started embracing my identity and taking ownership of that a little more to say, no, I, my country, my parents were in the right to flee from poverty and exploitation. They were in the right to try and find something new and better for their child. And I am here. So now we just have to figure out what to do with it, right? And um, ultimately, there's 11 million undocumented people across the U.S. And oftentimes, I spend more time thinking about students. So we have 85,000 high school students who are undocumented that graduate high school every year. That means 85,000 high school undocumented students are going off into the world. We have one in 10 students who is a U.S. citizen but lives with an undocumented parent. So that means that this is beyond just those of us that are undocumented. This means that you might know an undocumented person without even being aware of it because there's so many of us. Yep, yep. A lot of things that people don't really, and it's not common to share it, right? Like you're being really courageous because for the better part of the last decade, I mean, for Christ's sakes, I watched a video from when you were in college and you were like 20 or something and you were like talking about this like in 2011, 2012. So like you've lived this, you know, for a long time and it's important you said that and our listener kind of like digested that to understand. But bringing it back to your personal experience, like when did you know, like you didn't know anything, like you thought you were going to Disney 
Disneyland, you're in this new school, all this stuff. When did you start to realize that, hey, some things, maybe you needed to fill a form in school and you didn't have a social security number. But when you talk to your, your, your parents about college, you were like, oh, that might not be possible. Like, when did you realize, how old were you when, did, when you realized that, oh, I might be different or undocumented, you know, kind of thing. When did that realization? I always knew there was something different about my family and me. Um, particularly because we were always so scared of doing everything. But I didn't understand it until middle school. So I still remember in middle school was when in Phoenix, Arizona, they were doing a day without a Mexican marches. And I remember... Sorry, what was that? A day what? A day without a Mexican. So they would hold protests in downtown Phoenix where anyone who identified as Mexican would like leave their job or their school or their place, like wherever they were doing. And they would go downtown and march and protest as a way to showcase this is what a day without a Mexican would look like. like. I was like, that's an interesting name. I was wondering what. Yeah, no, I mean, there's like a movie that's been made about it since then. I'm sure there's documentaries and everything, but it was a very real thing. It was a way for my community to show people that we are a part of every single infrastructure in the U.S. Um, But I was in middle school, so I was barely sort of like starting to try and figure out what it meant. Uh, So I remember turning on the news and seeing everyone marching downtown, and they all looked like me. They all talked like me. They were all wearing Mexican flags, U.S. flags, and I was really trying to understand why I wasn't there or why my parents didn't want to go. And my mom and dad just kept saying like, no, you are not going to this protest. We are not going to this protest. You will stay in school. And I remember I went to school and there were only like two of us in class because everyone else was at the protest. Um, But I started really thinking about politics then. I started asking questions, trying to figure out like why why were they marching and why couldn't I march? march. And middle school, that was like what, 13, something like that? Yeah, I I mean, I don't know. I think students are like 13 in middle school. Yeah, I was around that age. Okay. Did you eventually go or you stayed back? No, I didn't go to a protest at all until I left college. And then it was sort of my own choice. Um, and part of that is just like, you know, my my parents really wanted to keep me safe. Right, so right, right. every choice they ever made was around safe. That makes so much sense. And you touched on something that people often don't realize when they say immigrants are so well behaved or, you know, they use like there's sometimes when they say, you know, immigrants in corporate America, they work harder. They're, you know, they're, they're quiet diligent you know they take instructions people don't realize it's not because like immigrants are the best people they're just afraid that if they mess up something's gonna happen so when you have all these um you know very silly arguments that oh let's say in the black community now that oh you know black uh, or africans versus african americans i have all this silly uh you guys don't realize it's not because africans who are here want like it's not like we're we're bad people, but it's not like we're, we're, we're human, like anyone else. Like good side, the bad side. But the reason why you drive so slowly and don't want to get a parking ticket, and when you interact with the police, you you don't act like someone who has a right. You you kind of like are submissive, and you make sure that you you, you fly under the radar. It's because you're afraid. You don't want the slightest thing that can lead to either deportation, imprisonment, affect your job, whatever. Because you have people back home that are depending on you, right? So even when I travel to Canada, for instance, like. 
like I had a valid student visa so I could leave and come into the U.S. as I pleased while I was still in school and I was going for an official school function, right? But my, my family members were still telling me, are you sure? I'm like, I'm representing my university in a competition in a different country. Like, it doesn't get any more with letters and everything. It doesn't get any more legit than that. Like, why would I be afraid to leave the country? Well, I'm like, well, you know, just like, you never know while you're abroad, Trump might say something, you'll be able to get back in, blah, blah, blah. But I say that to say the fear that people or immigrants live with is, is very serious. Why were you unafraid coming out as undocumented? First things first, how did you even get to college, right? And let, let's touch on the whole DACA issue. Like, how did you get to college? Let's explain that. I mean, it was a whole journey. It was a very long journey. And even thinking through the fear, the fear ruled my life for a very long time. My parents did everything they could to keep us safe. And so we, um, at that time, I couldn't have a driver's license. Sorry, what, what are what are some of the things they did? Sorry to cut you short. Did they yeah. force you guys not to disclose your identity? Do you guys change names? What, what were some of the, pr the practical no, things they did? A lot of it, a lot of it was just about not talking about our immigration status or even our country of origin. So my mom specifically said, if anyone asks you where you were born, you say here. Here is where you were born. Yes. And so for, for a few years, that's what I would do. I would say, yeah, I was born here. This is where I'm at. This is where I've been my entire life. Um, it actually wasn't, well, before I talk about college, I, I will say that, you know, our, our immigrant community is so resilient that even in the scariest of moments, um, they found ways through it. For example, um, my dad as a construction worker had a whole system, like a network where he would text other construction workers to find out where immigration raids were happening in Phoenix. And so if there was a raid on, you know, whatever intersection, they would all sort of communicate with each other and avoid it. And take the long route home. And, you know, we found ways to survive. But of course, thriving really starts with an education. At least that's what my family taught. And in Arizona at the time, and even to this day, you know, Arizona is still fighting like through and about and for in-state tuition for undocumented immigrants. But at the time, there was a law that said that undocumented immigrants had to pay three times as much as any U.S. citizen for college. And so even when I was registering for concurrent education courses, you know, the ones that you take in high school and get college credit for, even those I could not afford because it was three times as expensive for me than anyone else. So I didn't. I didn't try to do any of it. It wasn't until one day my freshman year math teacher came up to me and he pulled me aside. At that point, I think I was like a junior. And he said, Tanya, I have access to your birth certificate so I can see that you were born in Mexico. Is there anything you want to share with me? And I mean, I burst into tears and I said, yeah, I don't have papers. I don't know how I'm going to get to college. It doesn't matter how smart I am. I don't see how any of this is going to work out for me after high school. And so he walked me over to the assistant principal and the career development uh, coordinator and all three of them sort of put their heads together and tried to figure out how to help me. And it was my career development coordinator at the high school who went to every single recruitment fair that she could find for colleges. And she would ask them point blank, do you accept undocumented students at your college? And they all said no, even though that's false. As we now know, uh, colleges do in fact accept undocumented students. Right. Um, but this at was the pre, time, pre right? yeah, this was pre-DACA. This was pre, I mean, DREAM Act had not 
even been put up to its its 2010 vote. So this was pre-everything. Um, and so there was no information out there. No one knew anything. And even the recruitment officers from each university like probably also didn't know. They were just saying no because that's what they assumed. Um, it wasn't until one day that she came back to me and she said, one of them said yes. And so I was like, oh, thank goodness. I, I'm going to have a path. Nice. What um, college was that? It was an Ivy League institution, the University of Pennsylvania. And I was terrified. I was like, how is my only option this really like high tier university? There's no way I'm getting in. And I didn't have a backup. My backup was returning to Mexico and figuring life out there because I didn't realize, uh, I didn't know about community college. I didn't know about going to any other school. So I applied and, you know, thankfully as a high school valedictorian, I got accepted. And uh, because it's a private school, they paid for everything. I got a full ride. Um, so that's how I got to college, you know, that and the 30 hour drive that my parents took <laughs> to take me all the way to Philly. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, you know, just twice as bad as a Disneyland drive, but, you know, not as bad. Like, <laughs> I mean, you were a valedictorian in high school. That That's pretty impressive that even though you had all these challenges, had to learn English with a seven-year-old interpreter <laughs> and having to worry about your parents or your dad, you know, being ambushed by, you know, immigration and customer enforcement or all these things, like, you still became valedictorian. Did any part of you want to give up? I know you talked about your option being going back to Mexico. Did any part of you just say, you know what, maybe I'll just be, you know, join my dad in construction or, you know, work some kind of under the table job and just live my life, you know, without an education or a college education. That kind of, you think about that when you're that age? Yeah, the thought definitely crossed my mind. Um, my mom cleaned houses. And so that would have been my option to go clean houses. Um, but it was sort of like, you know, maybe you had this experience also. I find that a lot of immigrant families function this way. It was my family always said education is the goal. So anything else doesn't matter. You need to go to school. Um, and so that was always the dream, the idea, the plan. Somehow that was what I needed and I was going to make that happen. Yep. Immigrant families typically take education very seriously because most of them see that as a way out of the situation, right? A Nigerian parent will tell you, can I either become a doctor, a lawyer, or a disgrace? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the regular stuff. But okay, eventually, like by by like the tip of your hair, like become, make like you pen Wharton, you went to the same school Trump went to 30 years earlier, whatever, which is ironic, right? But when you got there, I'm sure your parents or your mom would have told you, you know what, okay, we, we've God has blessed us. We have this thing now. Just keep your head under the radar, read your books, try to graduate, try to get a job. But you became like a student activist almost. Like you, there are all these things online that I saw from years ago. I'm like, wow, like she was really about this life, you know. So back to the question I asked earlier, why were you unapologetic? Why did you why did you say enough is enough? And I'm not going to be silent about this because an immigrant family will tell you being undocumented is one thing, like being in this protest, being part of this advocacy groups, all these things. And, you know, when you have like a full right tuition on the side, isn't that risking a lot? Why did you decide to be so forthcoming with it? Yeah, absolutely. And yes, all of those things are things my parents said. <laughs> um, my first 
first protest was freshman year of college, and it was in a public park. There were tons of media agencies out there, reporters with microphones, cameras, everything. And I remember watching this woman, Fernanda Marroquin, with big hoops and a giant megaphone, just yelling out to the world, I'm undocumented and unafraid. And I was like, girl, you're going to get deported. Oh my gosh, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like that thought that crosses your mind, like, oh, I need to go home now. Um, but she was fine that day, right? Like she did not get deported. She she really, her, what she did was empower me to feel like maybe I can share my story. If she's okay, maybe I'll be okay. Because that sounded amazing. So I started talking to them and they were a local organizing group in Philly. And they taught me that the safest place for an undocumented immigrant is in community. And that was an amazing learning for me. I wouldn't be where I am today without that particular learning because I realized it's true. If I share my story to 20 people, those 20 people will stand up for me if I'm ever in deportation proceedings. Now imagine the kind of impact if I'm sharing my story to 50, 100, 1,000 people. Ideally, those 1,000 people would be like, no, I like Tanya. I remember hearing her talk. She was sweet. She was kind. She's awesome. Let's keep her in this country. And so in a sense, it was. It started out kind of as a selfish way for me to find my identity and feel like I was supported by a group of people that I hadn't felt in Phoenix, Arizona. Interesting. Was, was that your only mode of defense? I, I think about like the race riots, right? Pre-Civil Rights Act, Mar Martin Luther King, right? They had, it was like heavy duty planning in the South when, you know, the, the Blacks uh, would go on, you know, these freedom rights and, you know, Selma, Alabama, and all these things. They'll say, okay, you know what? We're going to write full numbers on our arm. And if this happens, this is a lawyer to call. And if that happens, there was all this structure in place because it was serious. Like this was their lives at stake. Um, when you say community, kind of like saying you're undocumented was your way of kind of like protecting yourself if anything happened. Was there anything else kind of like like that? And I say that to say someone who might be you 10 years ago, like they might be a 19-year-old girl in Philly listening to this and might take this to heart and, you know, going to the street. Was there any other kind of defense you guys use that, okay, you know, you're always in touch with your immigration lawyer through your organization. They know where you are at every given point in time. This, that, that, and the other. If you're arrested by a cop, this is exactly what you say. This is what you don't say. What are some of those practical steps? Absolutely. So, you know, after I started sharing my story, I went into full trainings for how to be a community organizer. And part of it as a directly impacted person under the immigration system was learning how to do all of those things in ways that will keep me safe. And so we had any sorts of trainings that you can imagine ranging from how to talk to media, what are the ways that you um, use the right talking points on the news, uh, all the way to understanding policies and politics and knowing my rights, right? So important to know my rights in front of police, in front of ICE agents. Uh, so I really got a lot of knowledge that first year. Um, and I also had a breaking point that first year because I always thought that Arizona was the worst because I had been raised under Sheriff Arpaio and his craziness. And so I was like, oh, nothing's going to get worse or like nothing's going to be worse than Phoenix, Arizona. And in Philly, I saw 
how there were still so many people who were undocumented there who were just being put in deportation buses. And like you would see them one day and the next day they would be gone. And that same year, I went to Alabama, where Alabama was trying to pass laws even worse than SB 1070 in Arizona. They were trying to make it like a human trafficking violation if anyone gave a ride to an undocumented person. They were trying to cancel any kind of contracts between undocumented people and governments. So that would include like housing. Yeah. Yeah. And so we went to Alabama and talked to the youth and the youth were like, no, we're not going to school on Monday. Our teachers are going to turn us in. And I really felt that, you know, and then I went back to Philly and the Philly moms gathered us in a restaurant and they said, you know, our youth who are undocumented no longer have a will to live because they don't see a future without papers. And so I put all of that together and I got angry. And thankfully, you know, because I had been trained as an organizer, I used that anger in a productive way. And I started thinking through more of those ways to keep our community safe. And a lot of it was in direct fighting against deportations, where we would rally community support to make sure that people in our community were not being deported. We would do entire public campaigns to talk about how um, any given family should stay in the community instead of like being returned to their home country where they would probably face a lot of violence. Um, And a lot of it was also raising awareness in the community. I mean, that's when I started doing trainings for families on knowing their rights, on making sure that they knew what they would do in case ICE agents came to their home or their workplace. You know, that was when I started thinking about what does it mean to be an undocumented student in the school district? What kind of policies do they have? Um, And, you know, that anger took me all the way to participating in civil disobedience, where, you know, as you mentioned, I did have my lawyer's number sort of like, just sharpied onto my skin. I had it on my legs, on my arms, on my stomach, you know, in case one of them rubbed off. Um, And I did, I blocked the highway. Uh, This was again pre-DACA with another organizer, Jessica. Um, And we were trying to raise awareness, not only about plight of undocumented immigrants, but also about the fact that our stories are really what unite us and how together we will be safe. Um, And we were also trying to stop the deportation of another man named Miguel. And, you know, ultimately, we actually weren't able to keep him from deportation. but, you know, through our civil disobedience, we did get reach a lot more people with our message. And a lot more people, I think, realized that coming out of the shadows was one way to find safety and find even just like empowerment. Man, you, you kind of like remind me of a guest we had on the podcast about, you know, uh, a couple of months ago, um, Aura Caracol uh, Flores. And she was like heavy into the whole BLM thing. And, you know, during George Floyd, like they created the Black House Autonomous Zone in DC and all that stuff, like with the civil disobedience like like you she was forced to this world based on like largely based on how she grew up you know her, the situation who she associated herself with and she kind of like found this cause in college too as well just like yourself did you know when you were doing all those things that you were going to make it a lifelong journey is it going to be a lifelong journey for you like immigration issues social impact issues uh, political issues in that way like what what's the what's the whole plan yeah i think once an organizer always as an organizer, I think I'll, I'll be Word in this movement. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be in this movement forever. I mean, there's I over the years I've sort of also been jaded a little bit, so I don't see 
my services and organizing needs as sort of being unnecessary anytime soon, which is to say, like, I think my community is going to continue to be struggling against oppressors for a while. Um, so my hope is that if I can continue organizing and I can teach others to continue organizing and we can have a consistent movement, then maybe seven generations from now, the world will be totally different and a much, much better place. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, we definitely look at this generation. Like there, there seems to be a little bit of, a little bit, just a little bit of hope, you know, compared to kind of like previous generations. Sometimes, which is no fault of theirs. But um, let me touch on something you said. So we have this on record again for the benefits of those who are listening. When you talk about rights of an undocumented person, can you summarize that just for someone who's hearing this who might be undocumented? Like, what are the rights they have? What should they do if they are being approached by an ICE agent? Sure. So I don't know if there is a good way to summarize, but what I will say is that most undocumented people don't realize that the U.S. Constitution applies to anyone who sets foot on this land. And so that includes us. Um, so any any of the Bill of Rights amendments, like all any of the things you could think of that protect people in the United States still protect undocumented immigrants. Uh, so namely, like, you know, protection from unwanted search and seizure, like think about how many times ICE agents might ask, like, let me see the back of your trunk, or let me search your home or your car or whatever, like we are protected against all of that. Um, there are many organizations and, you know, depending on the state, have created different systems. But here in Colorado, we have something called the Colorado Rapid Response Network, which is a 24-7 hotline where people can report raids. And really, what we've realized throughout this process is that so many people don't know, they don't have to talk to officers, they don't have to talk to agents, they can invoke the Fifth Amendment and say, you know, I don't want to say anything without a lawyer present. And all of those things that were taught in like eighth grade about, you know, government and social and social, uh, what's it called? Social studies. Social studies, yeah. Um, I was going to say social justice because, you know, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> but so many of those things still apply to us. And uh, there are even red cards now. They're little, literal red cards that say, uh, in English, I do not wish to speak to you unless there's an attorney present. Um, and then people could literally just put them up to their window if they're pulled over by an ICE agent and put it up to their window. The ICE agent will read it and be like, okay, well, this person knows their rights. And, you know, usually they would leave them alone. So certainly a lot of those resources can be found on websites like United We Dream and Informed Immigrant. In Colorado, you can search undocuhub.com. Um, but there's so many resources out there now that there were not back in the day. Right. And I, and I guess there are also like barriers to know this like we talked about the language problem um you were lucky to to get like an ivy league education um maybe it also boils down to um the the core of it which is still community which you said earlier right like even if like it's, it's difficult to kind of like find all these things out on your own like just being part of that community like i'm sure there's a local community uh organizations like yours which we'll talk about in a bit all over the u.s which you can just be a part of and you know you get to learn these things you get to be part of a network that even if you don't know those things you have people who can help you and who can assist you and you know and things like that so that's probably like the the lowest hanging fruit if i can say so myself um another thing like we're starting to see this a lot now right we also saw it in the olympics with like simone biles like mental health is becoming like more and more prevalent and you know it's unfortunate that we it wasn't as popular as this back then because maybe our parents would have been nicer to us because sometimes it's just trauma that they are passing you know they say all these things oh 
your generation is soft, you know, whatever, whatever, just because we're in touch with like, everyone is complaining, bosses are complaining of millennial employees or Gen Z employees. Everyone is complaining, but you know, just because like a lot of people in generation, uh, I'll say why below, like know what they want, are in touch with your feelings, whatnot, whatnot, like it's different. But for an undocumented immigrant, that's extra stress because like your whole life, you know, mental health uh, triggering issues and then being undocumented, that's extra stress. Like what are some of like the practical ways you think that uh, undocumented people can kind of like deal with mental health? Because most times they're coming from countries where it's not like the U.S. Like even in the U.S., like mental health is not all the way there let alone in Mexico or Nigeria or wherever you came from. Like, so like they don't even know about this. They don't even know how to start to explain to that Latino parent or Nigerian parent that, oh, I'm going through a phase or whatever. Like, what, what do you have to say to someone in that situation? Absolutely. I mean, the first step is to just listen to your body because we know when we start paying attention to ourselves, like what is giving us fear, what is bringing up anxiety, what is creating, you know, difficult coping mechanisms that don't serve us. And for the undocumented community, it is so hard because when you mentioned at the very beginning of the conversation that we're, you know, we're taught to keep our head below and like just like fly under the radar, not talk about things, keep things to yourself. You're going to be strong. You're going to get an education. You're going to be the life of the family. And it's sort of like a lot of our students really internalize that and then don't process that. So listening to your, yourself and your body is the first step. Um, and then just asking for help is so important, right? Like so much of our undocumented community faces really unique mental health challenges. Like the fear factor is there constantly. It's not okay for our bodies to constantly be in a state of fight or flight. If we're worried that we're going to get deported today or tomorrow, or that we won't have a job in two years when our work permit expires, like all of that just keeps the fight or flight response on edge and that's not okay. Um, moreover, like the media is just so much in our lives and politicians are playing political football with our lives and there's this constant shame and guilt and everything you can think of. Um, there are certainly some resources out there uh, there's, um, you know, Instagram pages dedicated to undocumented mental health that you can sort of find, you know, for the younger generation, oh, that's, that's always on social media. Instagram page. Yeah. Listen, there's Facebook groups, there's everything. I mean, there's, I think depending on your age range, there's something for everyone now. So really just finding your community and asking for help when you need it is so critical. Well said, well said. Um, so eventually, like after all your um, interactions with like authorities and protests and things like when you were in college, like you obviously continued that. And like last year during the pandemic, you started something called Conviver. Um, first, like, let me ask, what does that mean? Um, what's, what language is that? What does Conviver mean? Absolutely. So it's in Spanish. And if you have a super, super literal translation, like if you just break apart the word, it means living with, like living together. Together. Um, but there's no actual like word in English that encompasses convivir. Uh, so I'll just paint you a picture. It's more like a large gathering. Uh, there's lots of food, lots of music, lots of laughter. Um, some people, when I say that to them, they're like, oh, so it's like a potluck. And I'm like, yeah, maybe it's like a potluck. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> so different cultures might have different ways of saying it. For us, it's it's convivir. And that's really what I wanted to replicate, you know? I mean, the pandemic really brought to light how important it was. But then, of course, it was on the heels of uh, Trump administration. It's 
you know, years since the Dream Act has failed, uh, years of battles with DACA, the temporary work permit. And, uh, you know, I used to be a classroom teacher, so I live my life at the intersection of educational equity and immigrant rights. And so I've seen how our youth are still stuck. I mean, a generation later, and they're still stuck in ways that I was stuck. They're still getting to college and not understanding or embracing their identity. They're still listening to all the terrible things that the media and politicians are saying about us. And I want the world to be different. And so Convivid really just helps students find their own self-empowerment journey and develop leadership skills and advocacy skills so that they're not in programs that are just focused on oppression or assimilation, because that's not what we should be doing to our youth. Nice, nice. You're, you're, you're living what you preach. I like it. I like it. Like you're, you're about that work. Like, and you're so brave too, because I can only, I keep relating this to a Nigerian parent because that's my background. Like, I'm just imagining like, wait, what? undocumented you are you are saying you are not afraid you're announcing yourself to be arrested and eh? you managed to get into the university of pennsylvania and eh? instead of you to go to wall street you say you want to be a teacher a teacher not even a lawyer or a doctor a teacher like not an you, engineer has it been like a constant source of frustration all these decisions like oh well, yeah the first one to be educated did you feel that pressure okay let me go into wall street or some of these high paying jobs where i can make some money for my family like what's that interaction is it constant disappointment for your parents or at this time they've like come around to you that oh that's just Tanya that's what she does no they've definitely come around by now but I you know when I was at Wharton it's a business school so they were like so what are you doing with your business degree and I was like oh I'm gonna go teach I'm gonna go teach in Phoenix Arizona where we left and and they were yeah yeah I went back home and I mean that's a whole other story right but yeah my parents at first were very confused because in Mexico what you study is always what you then practice and what I learned in the United States is that that's not necessarily true at least for this generation um people study whatever they want and then they sort of go into a job that they find interesting um and my parents were not really getting that. It took a long time for them to see that I was just passionate about working with youth and I was passionate about organizing. And yes, I do still like business. I mean, I, I have um, an LLC in addition to my nonprofit where I do like public speaking engagements and where I contract out services. Um, I even do like Airbnb hosting in my home. Like there's so many different entrepreneurial parts of my life. Um, but certainly the, the top ways of my being are definitely more in the service and advocacy realm, which my parents now truly understand. And it's even become a family affair. Like sometimes I engage my mom and like parent outreach for my nonprofit. And like my siblings are so young that sometimes I have them come to our programming. Um, so that part has been really great. Nice, nice. And let's talk about Convivir, like specifically. Um, so you guys have been active for about a year. You guys work exclusively exclusively with uh, six to twelve graders, I think. Um, what is it? What is it exactly you're trying to do? Uh, talk to me about some of your programs. Absolutely. So I work specifically with students who are immigrants, who are refugees, and who are first generation, especially if they're in mixed immigration status families. Actually, the majority of my students are in mixed immigration status families, and what we do is we really just do a lot of storytelling. And what, I'm sorry. And what that means is that um, they might be American citizens and their parents might be undocumented or the yes. other way around kind of thing. Exactly. Or if they have like siblings with a different status. Also, you know, taking into account that there's so many different statuses across the U.S. 
less, like you could be undocumented. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you could be naturalized, naturalized citizen. But then there's so much in between, like people could have temporary visas, different kinds of employment statuses. Um, So certainly welcoming anyone in that wide range into our programs. I wonder with all these people going to Mars and Elon Musk, I wonder if we'll be undocumented when we get to Venus or Mercury. (laughs) You know, no one knows. (laughs) When I was younger, I would think about that a lot. I was like, what 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 would I be called if I went over to to Mars or Venus or Pluto? Right, right. I mean, the construct (laughs) of countries itself, like take Africa, for instance, like a group of people sat in Berlin in 1914 or whatever it was and like carved out countries and tribes that literally lived together for 100 years just had a line drawn in between them and were so suddenly like a different country. Like, it's crazy. But sorry to cut you short. You were talking about some of the programs you guys do at Come Yeah, yeah. And, and certainly, you know, it's important that we have all these little like side notes because this is what we talk about, Convivid. All of my students have these same questions, right? And so we do spend a lot of time just trying to understand. Um, and for them, it's either processing their own journey or processing their family's journey. And all of it is chaotic and messy and sometimes traumatic. And so we do do a lot of storytelling to process that trauma. We use a lot of art to sort of engage in their creativity instead of like all those white supremacist culture characteristics that say that everything has to be like a certain way. Um, And ultimately, we just build community because as you know, one theme that has come out of today is that in community, we can survive a lot. And so really trying to impart that on the youth as well. Super important, like super important. Do you, are you interested in politics at all? Like maybe not now, but maybe sometime in the future. Like we can use like a a Warren graduate, a bilingual Warren graduate for, you know, pass some laws and stuff. Oh my gosh. No, there's no way. People have asked me if I would ever like run for office or become mayor or something. No, I am much more comfortable in this side of like where I get to fight back against injustices. I would not want to put myself in a position where I can't do everything that I want. Um, And that's part of the reason why I left the classroom because I couldn't do everything that I wanted. When you say everything you want, you mean personally? Everything I want for justice, so for community. Oh, right, Yeah, because once you're in office, you have to take into account like everyone's interests, not just your direct community or your own self-interests. And I don't know that I could do that. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that makes sense that makes sense okay guys i try to ask she's not ready to announce yet she'll come back when she's no. ready towards the election <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm i kidding. mean let me know whenever naturalized people are allowed to become president maybe i'd take that <laughs> <laughs> right 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 we go all the way we go all the way man i really appreciate your story like you know i, I i'm i just started to learn in my life because i was really really linear when i was younger and i think most men are like not, not a lot of men know how to multitask so i needed to achieve one thing so it, it was first school then it was this then it was that but right around the point where I got to college about 10 years ago that's when I started to like do a lot of different things and I knew that oh life could be multifaceted and even at that like it also took me like a while to like balance things I I haven't really fully balanced things all the way right but I wish I had known that earlier that oh you could have your education and your love life and your career and sports and all these things and you can have all of that in your life I was always kind of like focused on one thing at a time I say that to say like, I really appreciate what you did. Not only were you getting an Ivy League education, you eventually graduated, even went for a master's and MED. Like, you were also, like, creating 
real change in, in, in life. So it's not like it's and it's not like you know there's a right or wrong way to do it. But some people feel like, oh, let me come to the US, work for 15 years, 20 years, get my money, then go back to Nigeria and see how I can help some people and set up an NGO. But you were like, no, from day one, I can be that change in one way or the other. You know, not to say there's a right or wrong way, but it's very admirable. Um, kind of like your approach uh, to everything. Thank you. Yeah, I try to say that to my students as well, that they could be part of this country in any way that they think works. And some of them want to be artists. Some of them want to be connectors or healers or, you know, there's so many different things that one can be beyond that, like, doctor, lawyer, engineer. Or disgrace. Or a disgrace. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, you know, the next generation is so ready. When I talk to youth, they see the world in ways that I can't even oh, imagine. Oh man, tell me about it. Like even just in, in the business world, in the investment world, like, yeah, we have the whole GameStop and crypto thing, but like I was like at a target the other day and these guys mustn't, I'm not sure if they were more than like 13 or 14 years. They were like young kids and there were like three of them like in the store and they were like, yeah, yeah, my comic book. I think they were like collecting like comic books or playing cards or sports cards and I was saying, yeah, yeah, it's, it's gone up. It's $600 now. They were so excited. Like, wow, like this is like, one way or the other, they are getting investment education at that age. So it's going to be a totally different world. It's not like our parents that we never worked for one place for more than two years. Like we don't work for 30 years for one company and receive a gold watch upon retirement and bye-bye. And we don't wait till we're, we're, we're 30 to buy a house. Like there are all these different things. So it's a very interesting generation. There's, there's a gift and a curse to it. But let's see if we have what it takes to solve some of the world's challenges. But when I see people like yourself, part of my generation, I'm um, optimistic about what the outcome will be. Thank you. We all do our little bit to try and make the world better. Most definitely. Before we leave, um, what are I want you to say two things or, or things uh, to two different sets of people. Like I want you to address that undocumented immigrant who might be listening right now. You know, it can be anything. Like talk to that little girl, that little boy, that grown man, that grown woman, whoever it is. Um, about just just speak to them and also talk to like the average American or, you know, other nationality who might be oblivious about some of these occurrences and how they can either be an ally or how they can increase your understanding about the situation. Absolutely. To my undocumented community, you are not alone, first and foremost. You have me, you have us. There's a whole lot of us. And as we say in community organizing, people power is the strongest when we're all together. So don't ever think that you are not worthy of being here. You deserve to have joy and everything else you see. And to the average American, um, I would say look beyond the politics. Because we're humans. We are humans who That's are a your tall neighbors. Ask, man. They're turning COVID political. Like the <laughs> I vaccines know, are everything. political. Like, I don't know, man. I don't know about that. And I get it. I get it. Like everything is political, but also to a certain point, you know, you have to really process the fact that so many of us are a part of this country. I've been here since I don't know, it's been like two decades or something. And 
there are other people that have been here for longer. There are other people that might've just gotten here yesterday, but we're part of the schools. We're part of the churches. We're part of the businesses. I mean, most businesses are started by immigrants. America was built by, well, it was was run by (laughs) immigrants for the most part. Immigrants and stolen labor, for sure. Right, right. I mean, real Americans are Native Americans, and they were also, like, disenfranchised from their land, right? So everyone who's white is not even from America, traditionally. A great-great-great-grandfather came from, like, Germany or Israel or... Italy or whatever so yeah absolutely and you know my last point is just like when we as an immigrant rights movement started pushing for the dream act when it was first introduced in 2001 it failed in 2010 and since then we've only managed to acquire DACA the work permit the temporary work permit and so a lot of people who are just average Americans in the U.S. when they think about immigration they think about dreamers as like young people coming into this country and how they're the only ones that deserve mercy. But just a reminder, y'all, dreamers are now in their 30s. They're going into their 40s. We are whole human beings out in the world. And the conversation needs to change because it's been decades. Well said, well said. How can people support you? You know, people are locally in Colorado, people are not in Colorado. How can people support you, um, be part of your movement to help amplify what you're doing? Absolutely. So, I mean, you can certainly find bonvividcolorado.org and learn more about what we're up to, what we're doing. We're always looking for volunteers and, you know, board members and uh, more students and families to engage with our work, Um, but also just uplift my story. I mean, I have a TED Talk. I have a monologue through Modus Theater, um, certainly been in numerous articles and here and there and all over the place. And so by uplifting my story, you are then replacing someone's negative message about undocumented immigrants with me sharing my own experiences. And that makes all the difference. Right. All right, guys, you heard it from the guest. She said, uplift her story by sharing her interview on Cultural Class Podcast and share the link everywhere and retweet culture. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Yeah. But yeah, I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, if someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way uh, to reach out to Convivir or to you personally? Are you guys on social media? Do you have an email? I know you mentioned the website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you just email info at convividcolorado.org, uh, you could also find links to join our newsletter through our website, convividcolorado.org. And you can find me, uh, probably the easiest is through Instagram, tanya.victoria. Nice, nice. And Convivir is C-O-N-V-I-R-V-I-R. Charlie Orange, I don't no military lingo but we'll, ha- we'll have the link <laughs> we'll have the link to the convivial website in the description of this episode so you guys go see what they're doing amplify their message share when they have events share it donate to them we can have the donations link um in the episodes as well usually this is like the first donations link i'm ever putting there like i was just so amazed when i saw your digital footprint that you've been doing this for the better part of a decade since you were 19 18 that i knew you were really about this life so um i wish you all the best if there's anything i can do locally here in colorado or if, if you guys need my platform or if you need me to come carry some signs or carry some chairs or whatever like let me know I'll 
I'll be definitely there to lend my my voice and expertise as well as an immigrant. But thank you, Tanya, for all you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here today. It was lovely. Most definitely. All right, guys. Uh, you guys can follow Culture Class Podcast everywhere. It's Culture Class Podcast. Uh, share and retweet this episode. Uh, our website is cultureclasspodcast.com. If you're an undocumented immigrant and you want to reach Tanya, you can reach out to her directly. You can reach the Culture Class team. We can direct you to her. Um, we have a voicemail feature on our website. So um, if you don't want to type, you can go there and leave a voicemail in English or in Spanish and we'll make sure she gets it. Uh, but till next episode, be well.